Well, again, we gather to hear an account of the final hours and death of someone who lived and died almost 2,000 years ago. On a beautiful day like today, you ask, why? Why gather? And there are so many deaths, even noble deaths, in the sad history of the world. Why the death of this man? Especially as our culture seeks both to relativise and relegate the importance of this death, to see Easter as just one religious holiday among many in our multi-faith society and its religious observance as something optional to be fitted in between football and camping. Uh, Why is this an important day for the world, a day and a remembrance that deserves to have prominence and priority in your heart as well as in the public calendar? It's because the death of Jesus is no ordinary death, but the source of life and hope in a world full of death. And it's because Jesus is no ordinary man, but the Son of God, the rightful ruler of all nations. You may have already sensed as you listened to this eyewitness account of Jesus' betrayal, trial and death, some of its extraordinary nature. I mean, this is a death Jesus knew full well was coming. He spoke of the woman who poured expensive perfume on his head as preparing him for burial. He interpreted the significance of this death in the meal he shared with his followers, the bread and wine as his body and blood. He wrestled with its necessity in his prayer to his father as he asked for the cup of suffering and death to be taken from him. But he humbled himself to do the father's will, not as I will, but as you will, he said. Jesus knew better than any that his death was approaching and what kind of death he would suffer. And he had multiple opportunities to challenge, to interrupt the flow of events to avoid this death. Knowing it was coming, he could have left Jerusalem. He could have confronted his betrayer at the meal. He could have armed and readied his followers to resist rather than preventing them from fighting. Put your sword back in its place, he commanded. And according to Jesus, he could have called down effective divine assistance, 12 legions of angels. Jesus could have avoided this death, but instead insisted it must take place. And even more extraordinary was the great claim being settled by his death. You heard it raised by the high priest, the claim that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. Now that claim might not initially have much interest to you, but it should. Israel's God is the world's God, the creator and judge of all, our creator and judge. And Israel's promised ruler called the Son of God in Psalm 2 was the one this almighty creator said would judge the nations to establish God's rule over all and with justice would bring a time of peace, eternal peace, to a renewed creation. To know that peace, all you and I included, need to be at peace with him. Now this claim was what was stated on the charge board attached to Jesus' cross. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And that claim mattered to the Jewish leaders. And for them... Jesus' shameful crucifixion was the decisive disproving of any claim by Jesus to be the Son of God, the Christ, the promised King of Israel. 
And so they mocked his pretension as he hung dying on the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. In their view, a crucified man could not be the Christ, could plainly not be loved by God. But Jesus did not share their view of the meaning of his cruel death. On the cross, he was draining the cup the Father had given him. He was showing himself to be the true son of the Father. His last words in Matthew, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? are the words of David from Psalm 22, verse 1, the words of the humiliated and then rescued and vindicated king of Israel. With these words, we know Jesus himself knew, even in suffering, that he was king of Israel, God's son, and that staying on the cross, not saving himself, was the demonstration, not the denial of his being God's son. So even as he is dying, we have diametrically opposed interpretations of what was happening in the crucifixion of Jesus. One, the interpretation of those who seem to be the winners, the other of the dying man. Yet Jesus' resurrection showed he was right. This was the demonstration by the almighty God who can alone give life to the dead, that Jesus spoke the truth, that in his death he is God's son, the Christ, the King of Israel. And that's why this story does matter. Remembering this death on this day does matter. It's the death of the Son of God, the one who will rule and judge all people, including modern Australians. But confessing Jesus, the Son of God, leaves us with the bigger question, a more unsettling question. Why must the Son of God, the beloved of the Father, die? Why was it God's will he hung on that cross? Suffering is not how we conceive of greatness. Like the religious authorities, we usually think that dying at the hands of your enemies is a sign of failure. So why must the Son of God die? What does his death achieve? Jesus spoke of his death and its purpose in a number of places in the Gospels, but let's consider just one, what he said on the very night before his crucifixion. Sharing a Passover meal with his disciples, he had made bread a sign of his body given in death and the cup of wine they shared the sign of his blood, his life given in death. And he had said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus said the goal of his death was forgiveness of sins. But what is this sin that needs to be forgiven? Could sin be so dreadful and difficult that only this death could deal with it? Could it be everyone's problem? so that Jesus' death is, as Christians say, important for everyone? How does his death bring forgiveness? And it puzzles us, doesn't it, this focus on sin, because generally speaking, we don't think we are that bad, or sin, our falling short of God's standards, so serious a problem. 
Oh, we know we've got problems. We see them talked about, gender equity, violence against women, the warming of the planet, protecting our infrastructure from malicious internet attacks, personal problems like staying well or finding a job, the list goes on. But sin is not part of our conversation. Yet all around us there is sin. Sin in our society, sin in our lives, sin in our hearts, And there is sin in this story read today. And to get a handle on sin's character and seriousness, let's think about what we've heard. Let's think about the actions of the participants in this story. Take the religious authorities. Plotting Jesus' death, seeking false witness, inciting the mob to call for a Barabbas because of envy. Resenting Jesus' popularity and authority. Well, that's sin. They're mocking cruelty, delighting in Jesus' suffering as a demonstration of their own rightness and power. That's sin. Then there's Pilate, willing to wash his hands of an injustice he could have prevented to be free of the bother and threat to his own position. That's sin. The soldiers, taking cruel pleasure and bolstering their sense of superiority from having Jesus in their power. That's sin. The betrayal of a friend for money by Judas, that's sin. And Jesus' followers, like Peter, who boasted of their loyalty and then abandoned a friend and broke his word because of fear, that's sin. The crowd easily swayed to demand a murderer and rebel instead of a righteous man. There is sin in the story, yet the sins we see Envy, lies, hatred, cruelty and unkindness. Failure to do our duty to protect the innocent or following the mob to condemn the innocent. Greed, breaking our word, empty boasting. Those sins are not peculiar to the ancients. We see them all around us. I mean, we have campaigns of misinformation, bullying, breaking of promises in marriage, the greed that withholds wages, violence, let alone envy, lies, moral cowardice. We see those sins and more in our own lives. We're not different from those people we meet in the gospel. And where does all that come from? Well, Jesus says it comes from our hearts, the core of our being from our love of self in our hearts, our determination to put ourselves first. That's love. That love of ourselves is seen in our love of our own power, privilege, position, prosperity, pleasure and life and our determination to protect them. Oh, it's seen in our determination to be directed in pursuing our power, privilege, position, prosperity and pleasure by whatever seems right and best to us. Our sins show that big sin, that love of self, is right at the core of our being, affecting every part of our lives, what we do and think and say, and every relationship. And what we see in people's dealings with Jesus is that this big heart sin, which we all share in, is intolerant of God. When the Son of God comes, the creator of the world to his own, his rule is to be resisted as threatening our own and he must be ignored, abandoned, abused and finally got rid of. 
those who sin, who are committed to putting themselves first, saving their own lives, who are committed to following the direction of their own wills above God's word, are forever pitted in rebellion against God, the two rules cannot coexist. So as well as being destructive and ugly, creating a world of grief and guilt and fear where power rules and power competes for control. Sin exposes us to God's holy anger, his determination that justice and righteousness should be established on the earth and that all sin removed from his creation, his determination that all acknowledge him as he is, the true and living God, their creator and ruler and judge. And so sin excludes us by its nature from God's life-giving presence, from the light of his truth, and brings death. Sin is serious. And sin, this love of self, is everyone's problem, shrouding the world in darkness and death and making every one of us liable to God's just wrath. How can it be dealt with? How can God's just anger at what we've done and what we haven't done be turned aside. The reality is we can't do it. We can't do with God's anger by just ignoring God. There's no neutrality. That ignoring is itself sin, as you use God's good world without thanks to him. And we can't deal with it by just changing our minds, acknowledging we've been wrong, Now Judas shows us that just changing your mind about what's right can't undo the wrong we have done. Jesus was still betrayed, still given up to death, and his guilt remained. And we can't deal with God's wrath by any gift we could offer to God. Sinners owe him their lives already. There's nothing to give beyond what we already owe, and anything we do now could not make up for the wrong we have done. There is only one way. Our sin must be forgiven. Must be forgiven by God, forgiven by God without compromise to his just judgment. Forgiven without his accepting or tolerating sin, without suggesting that rebellion can be overlooked or ignored, for God will not abandon his righteousness forgive. He is righteous and just. He will not stop being God to accommodate our rebellion. It's only as the sinless son dies in the place of sinners, enduring God's just judgment on sin, only as the eternal son of God pays the cost in himself of forgiveness, the death of debt each of us owes to God, that sinners can find forgiveness from the holy God. Only this death that we remember today can bring forgiveness while vindicating God's just judgment and demonstrating his righteousness, a justice and righteousness we need. So why must the Son of God die? It's to do what only he can do, to die the death sinners deserve in their place the righteous for the unrighteous, to die the death that will turn aside God's just anger at our rebellion, to bring what only he can bring, the forgiveness of God to all who will repent and believe the gospel, for there can be no forgiveness 
for those who persist in rebellion, who persist in their hostility to God. But there is forgiveness for all who will call upon the Lord Jesus for mercy, full, free, complete, no debt outstanding. And with that forgiveness, Jesus by his death brings us peace with the holy God and hope of eternal life as we no longer need to die for our sin, no longer need to be excluded from God's life-giving presence. And that's all wonderful, isn't it? Reason enough to remember Jesus as long as life on this earth endures to celebrate this day as the day when we were ransomed from judgment and death. But we have more reason to remember with thanks. We've only answered the question, why must the Son of God die in terms of the purpose of his death? But we can also answer it in terms of motive. For what reason does the Father give the beloved Son to die for sinners? Sinners who have embraced a murderous hatred of their God. What takes the Son to the cross? Why is it the Father's will as it is so clearly? There is only one answer given repeatedly in Scripture. It's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or Paul, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive with Christ. The Father sends the Son to die out of love. There is no other reason. Love not because we are lovely or in any way deserving, but because just as he is holy, just and righteous, so God is love, rich in love, grace and mercy. You know, there's much that we don't understand about our world, isn't there, why this or that happens. But here, at the heart of history, we can know We can know why Jesus went to the cross. In a world where there is still so much cruelty, unkindness, envy and hatred, we know here love. Enduring, effective, deep. The love of the God who cannot be defeated, whose will is done, whose good purposes achieved, not just despite but through our rebellion against his good will. Marking this day, this death, says the true and living God is. And he is good. And there is hope in him. Hope for love and life, for truth and justice. Hope for you and hope for all creation. A real hope, just as there was a real death on a real cross on this day so many years ago. And so I hope that confessing the crucified, Jesus died for your sins. I trust you know this hope for yourself and you can find joy 
and comfort in praising the one who hung and died there for you and I.